Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Joey Calvez. I want to tell you guys a little bit about the Department of Metahuman Affairs. This one is a story about a team led by a retired sidekick, two felons, a failed actor from Broadway, and a reprogrammed cyborg. But their first mission is to stop the criminals who have robbed a bank, and they will have to set the world at ease. You're going to get 180 pages of entertainment action-packed awesomeness right here in the first six issues in a collected hardcover volume one all you got to do is head on over to kickstarter.com and type in the department of metahuman affairs or dma and check it out right now Welcome back to Murder Under the Midnight Sun. Welcome to my two-year anniversary special. Thank you so much to everybody that has been listening to me from the start, new listeners, and all of the wonderful pod people and fellow podcast hosts that I've met in the last couple of years. The last few years have been a fun, creative experience. I've released something like 60 episodes. I've gotten nearly a million downloads in dozens of countries, which is completely mind-blowing. I'm sitting in my cramped library broadcasting to the world. The last two years were also some of the roughest of my life, so it's just been extra amazing to have this creative outlet to work on when everything else is shit. And I love you guys. I'm looking forward to keeping this podcast going for the foreseeable future. And if I physically segue into a new state in the future, my podcast may do the same. We'll see. As long as there are murders on this earth, I will be talking about them. I also have a variety of new designs that are going to be up in my Threadless and Redbubble that you can get on a variety of merch items. And to my lovely patrons, you are going to be getting some stickers in the mail from me soon. And if you'd like to become a patron, simply click the link in the show notes to check out what I have to offer. And if you'd like to do a one-time donation, there's also a link for that. Always appreciated, and you're going to get something in the mail from me in return. So for this anniversary episode, I asked listeners and fellow podcast host to submit some of their cases to me. Cases that either have intrigued them or maybe their local pet case or maybe something that affected them personally. I wanted to put together an episode full of just a variety of different stories from around the world. And you guys that sent in submissions went so above and beyond. It was incredible. I think you guys are going to love this episode. It's going to be an extra long one, so get cozy and uh, get ready for some true crime. The first case I've got for you guys tonight is one I'm going to be reading out for a listener named Joseph Kicklider, and this case is very personal to him, and it's unsolved. It might be something for you Unsolved Mysteries podcast people to look into and maybe think about covering. It could definitely use more coverage. 
So here's Joseph's story. I am writing to you in response to your post where you were asking for hometown stories, personal stories, etc. This instance happened in my hometown of Glenville, Georgia. It occurred when I was a child sometime in the late 90s, around 1996, 1997. The victim was my grandmother, Linda Kicklider, and the perpetrator, to my knowledge, was never caught. My grandmother, Linda Kicklider, was returning to her home in Glenville from visiting her sister in Baxley, Georgia. Upon returning home, she unpacked her car, went inside, and settled down for the night. Sometime after she had shut the lights off and laid down for the evening, a burglar broke into her house through the back door. She got up to investigate the sound, turned on the lights, and there stood an African-American male in her kitchen. He proceeded to assault Linda Kicklider with a hammer and then sexually assaulted her before leaving the scene of the crime. To my knowledge, my grandmother was found outside of her home in a bloody nightgown, barely breathing and severely injured from all of the injuries she sustained in this attack. The Glenville, Georgia Police Department would immediately launch a joint investigation with the GBI. The investigation would ultimately be botched, evidence collected from the crime scene would be misplaced or lost, despite an overwhelming amount of DNA evidence collected from my grandmother's residence. To my knowledge, the case today still remains cold, mostly due to the botching of the case. I do not believe that the authorities were able to form a list of suspects. I know for a fact that no one was ever arrested, no one's to trial, and no one was ever sent to prison. Thank you so much for sharing your story with us, Joseph, as devastating as it is. I can't imagine having something like that happen to a family member and having to live so long, knowing that a killer is walking free out there somewhere. So I'm hoping some of my Unsolved Mysteries podcast people may want to look into this case a little bit more because it could use all the coverage it can get. Next up, I've got a submission from the nicest guy in podcasting, Robin Warder. Hello everyone, this is Robin Warder, host of the true crime podcast, The Trail Went Cold. And I want to talk to you about a crime which was probably one of my very first experiences learning about the concept of murder. I grew up in the town of Orangeville, Ontario, Canada, which at the time had a population of around 15,000. It was not a place where violent crime was common, and before this particular crime took place, there apparently had not been a recorded murder in the town for over a century. But on Sunday, November the 4th, 1984, the community was turned upside down when two local children were murdered, 11-year-old Daniel Babineau and his 9-year-old sister, Monique Babineau. The crime took place inside the empty St. Peter Separate School as the killer phoned up Daniel and asked him to meet him there in order to help him work on a class project. Monique decided to accompany her brother to the school at the last minute, but since the perpetrator was not expecting her to be there, he asked Monique to wait in the gym. The killer took Daniel into the girls' changing room and strangled him to death with a rope. He then went back into the gym to meet up with Monique, brought her into a washroom, and strangled her to death by wrapping his arm around her throat. The killer proceeded to carry the two victims' bodies outside into the schoolyard where they would be laid out and discovered by police later that evening. What was particularly shocking was that the perpetrator was a 14-year-old boy, Seven months before this crime took place, Canada had implemented the Young Offenders Act 
which banned publication on the names of anyone who committed a crime while under the age of 18. As a result, the name of the 14-year-old who murdered Danielle and Monique has never been publicly released. The offender actually served as an altar boy at the victim's funeral before police identified him as the killer and arrested him one week later. At first, he tried to claim that a heavyset man had threatened him and forced him to participate in the murders of Monique and Daniel, but soon admitted that he had acted alone. He was given an extensive evaluation by psychiatrists who concluded that he was mentally ill when he committed the murders and not criminally responsible for his actions. Under the terms of the Young Offenders Act, the maximum penalty the 14-year-old could have received was three years. In March of 1985, the boy went on trial and was found not guilty by reason of insanity. He was ordered to be confined to a psychiatric facility until they judged him safe for release. Because of a secrecy provision in the Young Offenders Act, no one connected to this case, including the victim's family, has ever been allowed to disclose any details about the killer's identity, his sentence, or his current whereabouts. While the perpetrator was eventually released, the public was never told when this actually happened or how long he was incarcerated, but he apparently never returned to Orangeville and went to live somewhere else with his family. Well, one detail which gave this case an extra level of controversy was the fact that the killer was a devout fan of the fantasy role-playing game Dungeons & Dragons. In fact, on the afternoon of the murders, he had, been trying to he had been trying to carve a wooden sword, but kept breaking it. One of the psychiatrists who examined the boy theorized that this caused him to snap and go into a psychotic rage. He wound up feeling an overwhelming urge to kill, and the Babino siblings became his unfortunate victims. Now, if you grew up during the 1980s, you'll know that Dungeons & Dragons was insanely popular back then, but there was also a ridiculous moral panic surrounding the game, as many people believed that it promoted Satanism and witchcraft, and would cause players to lose their grip on reality, even going so far as to drive them to commit suicide or murder. So, of course, a lot of emphasis was placed on the fact that the killer in this particular case was a D&D fanatic, creating some hysteria over the idea that the game drove him to murder Daniel and Monique. Of course, these days, we now know that the idea that fantasy role-playing games create murderers is absurd, and the perpetrator in this case obviously had a lot of serious mental health issues which, ca which caused him to commit this horrific crime, so his interest in D&D was likely irrelevant. Now, I was only six years old when this crime took place, so my memories of the event are pretty hazy. At the time, I was attending a different school in Orangeville than the one where the murders occurred, but I seem to remember hearing that two kids had been killed and adults becoming a lot more protective of us children. I don't think I really had much of an understanding about what actually happened, but I'm sure a lot of people in the town were completely shaken by this story. I will say that I've never been a fan of Dungeons & Dragons or fantasy RPGs in general, but once the D&D connection was made to the murders, it would not surprise me at all if quite a few kids in Orangeville were told by their parents that they were no longer allowed to play that game anymore. Anyway, congratulations to Ariel for reaching the second anniversary of her podcast, and thanks for listening to my story. Many thanks to Robin for his contribution. That is a terrifying story, and I would be interested to know what that offender went on to do with his life. Thank you so much for your regular submissions to my collaborative episodes and for generally being a really helpful guy. If you guys haven't heard The Trail Went Cold, be 
should definitely check it out. It's one of the OG true crime podcasts, and there are a lot of episodes to binge, so check it out. Thank you, Robin. Next up, we have a submission from friend and fellow true crime podcaster, Tony Price. He has a fantastic narrative voice, so I think you're going to want to check out his show. Thank you for calling 1-800-MURDER. All of our operators are currently busy at this time. This is 1-800-MURDER. I'm your host, Tony Price. This is a short story about the reason I got into true crime and podcasting. I'm from a small town called Fort Wayne, Indiana. It's the second largest city in Indiana that I'm sure most of you have never heard of. Back in 1984, it was either 84 or 85. I'm 11 years old, walking home from school. I have a little brother that's two years younger than me. He went to elementary school, so he got out of school maybe an hour and a half to two hours after I did. My mom's at work, and I'm coming home alone. I get to the door. The door's already, like, partially opened. There's a little crack. I can look in and see that the uh, we had these big, huge ugly floor model TVs and uh, I could see that was pushed out a little and I could see the couch was out of place but that's pretty much all I could see my stepfather's name is Ronald Bruce he was a really playful guy when it came to me and my brother he do like all kind of pranks and practical jokes I can remember uh, one year I went out to uh, help him do some painting and he had some fireworks and there was a guy up on the ladder scraping the old paint chips off of the house before we got ready to paint it. And he threw the fireworks, these firecrackers, he lit them all. It was like probably 24 firecrackers all on this one stem and he lit them all together. It literally sounded like gunshots. Uh, this guy fell off of the ladder, I mean, we were all just on the floor rolling. Um, anyway, he's like a really playful guy. So I assumed he was messing around with me in some kind of way. You know, as a kid, you try to make sense of everything that goes on around you. So I pushed the door open. And once I got all the way inside, I could see over the couch and I could see him laying on the floor with what I thought was ketchup, like poured out all around him, some on his face, some on his head. Again, he's a practical joker. So still with my 11 year old mind, I'm thinking that there's some kind of twist or turn that's about to happen. And he's going to yell, gotcha, or, you know, something like that. So I come over. And he's not moving, of course. So I lean over and I try to tickle him. I'm thinking, you know, I'll get him to to laugh or, you know, something. He'll have to move in some kind of way. So I try tickling him. 
and uh, he doesn't move. And I could feel that his uh, his flesh was stiff under his robe that he was wearing. It took me a second for it to really hit me what I was looking at. Once it registered, it really scared me. I can remember falling over him. And then now he's in between me and the door. So I slid back into the corner of the room. I like really didn't know what to do. I just knew I wasn't walking past that body that's laying on the floor of it's, you know, a man that I loved that was trying to instill in me what it takes to be a man. Although, you know, he cut a couple of corners. You can find out all the information about that on uh, my podcast. I'll be doing a more in-depth story about this. I was in the fetal position in the corner crying. And it hit me that my nine-year-old brother's going to be coming home within the next hour or so. And I know that I didn't want him to see what I saw and to go through what I was going through. I yelled to the top at the top of my lungs as, as loud as I could think to yell to get all of this stuff out of my head to like cover it up. So I'm not thinking about it. And I took off running. I jumped over him. I uh, jumped up on top of the couch and then over the back of the couch and made it to the door. I never looked back. I opened it. I believe I was still yelling, uh, going to my aunt's house. She lived directly next door to us. So I'm going to her house. I'm yelling. I'm crying like uncontrollably. I get to her house uh, she gets me calmed down and um, we uh, call the police. She wanted me to tell them what it was I saw next door. And uh, yeah, I called the police. I told them what was going on. My mom was at work. Uh, she got off work. When she got there, she was, you know, just as freaked out as I was about the whole situation. Oh, and uh, there were a couple of officers that didn't want my brother to get dropped off. So he asked us or asked me if I'd go to the, uh, my brother's school with them. So we went to school and picked him up. So he didn't have to see any of this stuff and have nightmares and questions and everything else that, uh, goes on. But, uh, yeah, the, case uh it's still unsolved to this day they don't have a clue what it was but um he was shot twice in the back of the head what the uh officers that were standing around called execution style so from that day on i was interested in everything true crime uh Back then, we didn't have podcasts or internet for <laughs> for that matter. But um, it was a big story in the papers around then about uh, John Wash, his son, uh, coming up missing. 
And yeah, I was pretty much raised in that era. So yeah, after that, it was everything true crime. I was fascinated with it. Yeah, so I brought true crime along with me into adulthood. Thank you, Ari and Murder Under the Midnight Sun for giving me this platform. The first episode of 1-800-MURDER will be in a few weeks, and I thank you for being so patient. Please join 1-800-MURDER's Facebook group for all the info and details. Let's dial into murder. Damn, that is a horrifying thing for a kid to experience. I can't even imagine going through life with that. And it makes sense that it would make somebody more interested in that sort of thing. Many thanks to Tony for his submission. Since it's so personal, I'm really looking forward to checking out his show. You guys should definitely subscribe, give him a big bump in his numbers right off the bat. Obviously, he's got a way with words, and I think it's going to be a great show. Next up, we have a nice long submission from friend and listener Casey Crane. My story begins and ends with that old adage, if you love someone, set them free. It's about choosing dishonesty to hold on to unrequited love. It's about bad judgments and even worst actions that can result when both parties act from places of absolute panic and desperation. Panic is often at the heart of a cautionary tale. Panic can make an already desperate situation deadly. This is a tale of desperation and panic that I have told time and time again to the young people in my life, all the more poignant in its cautionary lesson, because the story is true. However, at the heart of my story, it's not the adage about setting free those you love that's important. It's never allowing the world to forget those that are loved to begin with. Like many stories on murder under the midnight sun, this story is virtually unheard of in the halls of true crime, making it the perfect story to share with you all on this landmark anniversary episode. So settle in and let's begin with the cautionary tale of the all-too-short life and tragically unnecessary death of Elaine Amanda Sepulveda. The day that I first heard the name Elaine Sepulveda was November 6, 2004. You see, Elaine was my neighbor. She was 15 years old and she was missing. At the time, we lived in military housing at Naval Air Station Whidbey Island in Washington State. As rumors tend to do on military bases, news that one of our own was missing traveled fast. Being a true crime addict already, I immediately took to the internet and searched all I could on the details. There were none. So I contacted our ombudsman for information on how I could help. There's a real sense of community in the military, even for those not on active duty. The families will come out en masse to help another family. News traveled fast from house to house, neighbor to neighbor, that morning, and here's what we knew. Elaine had snuck out of her mother and stepfather's house the night before, after coming home from a high school post-Halloween party. She had left her purse, wallet, and cell phone at home. In fact, she left everything at home. Not one personal item seemed to have left with Elaine that night except for the clothes on her back. As those of us into true crime know, this is a very bad sign with a missing teenager. Something I tried to keep to myself, because this was before the days of true crime mania and podcasts. It was recommended we scour the forest surrounding our neighborhood in our efforts to locate Elaine. 
and I did. In the first few days, I was heading into the surrounding forests at least four times a day, even waking at the crack of dawn and heading out before my husband left for work, flashlight in hand. Occasionally, due to my husband's work schedule, I'd have to bundle up my then three and five-year-olds and take them along, mainly in the early days when there was a possibility Elaine was still alive. They helped me call out her name over and over into the trees. I couldn't stop. I felt such a deep need to help Elaine's family, to help Elaine come home. It wasn't a very rain-soaked week on Whidbey Island, nearly unheard of in fall in the Puget Sound. Also unheard of in my typically quiet neighborhood that week, news vans and press vehicles. When I would see a sudden upsurge in these vehicles, I would rush home to fire up the internet and get any and all updates on our case. By the 9th of November, three days in, we knew two things. First, an 18-year-old boy that attended Oak Harbor High School with Elaine had last seen her at about 2.30 a.m. on November 6th at the corner of the main road that led into our housing tract. His name was not released. Second, firemen at a station on the mainland had seen Elaine after she had knocked on their door begging for shelter from a late-night rainstorm and for food. She did not give the firemen her name, but they did feed her, they let her dry out, and they let her carry on her way. They had not heard the news of the missing Oak Harbor teen, but as soon as they did, they called police and let them know they had seen and fed her. You could practically hear the collective sigh of relief in our community. It was then that the police announced they believed Elaine was running away to her biological father's home in Texas, despite Mr. Sepulveda's adamant claims that there has never been even the slightest hint of such a plan from Elaine. He believed, he believed her to be happy with her mother and stepfather, enjoyed her school, her friends, and not once suggested she wanted to come live with him. So the community, and by now, the entire western half of Washington, and the I-5 corridor of Oregon and California, began keeping a keen eye out for a tiny, 5-foot-tall, 100-pound teenager of Hispanic descent traveling south with an aim towards Texas. I slowed down, but didn't stop my forest crawls. That left behind wallet and cell phone nagged at me. Most teens didn't have cell phones in 2004. I believe she wouldn't have left it. There was nothing after the fireman sighting. I told myself something might have happened on the mainland after she left that firehouse. She got in the wrong car. She ran into the wrong man. I wanted to trust the fireman's sighting, but something didn't feel right. Elaine's mother, Mary Jimenez, kept insisting to the press and the community at large that her daughter did not run away. As a mother and a teen runaway herself, she knew something was not right with this scenario. She all but dismissed the firehouse sighting, yet begged the public to keep looking while adamant that Elaine had not run away. And she was correct. Within a few days, police and press had to dial back the fireman's claim because in a cruel twist of fate, they had helped, fed, and sheltered a young Hispanic runaway, but it was not Elaine Sepulveda. It was a young woman with a remarkable resemblance to Elaine. The young lady that really was at the firehouse was located, interviewed, ID'd by the firemen as a correct teenager they had helped, and safely returned to her family by police. The search for Elaine renewed with vigor back on the island. I started to drive out to forests too far to walk to on foot from my home and search with earnest determination on my own. Admittedly, a little scared I might run into the person who had harmed Elaine, so I went armed.
At the time, the mistaken identity of the firehouse girl was making the news, and Mary Jimenez was adamant her child did not run away. Another factoid of Lane's life came to light. The kids she attended high school with were telling the police and the press that Elaine might be pregnant, four months pregnant. Her mother denied any knowledge of this pregnancy to the press. The wildfire speed of gossip amongst her fellow Navy families was that Elaine's mother knew she wasn't pregnant because Elaine had recently had her period. It was her mom who had bought her the necessary feminine products. We believed we knew what the press did not. Elaine wasn't pregnant. When this particular rumor had hit our home a few streets away, it caused my husband and I to pause and stare at each other as the implications of this rumor hit home. My husband stopped to ask me, didn't she sneak out to meet an 18-year-old boy? As I nodded grimly, speculation on motive suddenly clear, we felt a terrible sense of dread. But speculation is just that, speculation. Nonetheless, it seemed to have spurred my husband into action, and he started to join me on my trips into the forest. The news vans and press vehicles' presence dwindled with no more news on the lane to be reported. But her family, our neighbors, and even various squadrons from the base were still crawling through our local forest daily on the search. Our forest trails had never seen so much traffic in winter, parking lots at trailheads full even on weekdays. In town, flyers were being hung and handed out daily. But off the island, Elaine's name faded from headlines. November turned to December, then into January. When it was announced that over an upcoming three-day holiday weekend, some of the very best search teams in the country, along with the best of search dogs, would be descending on Whidbey Island for a massive all-hands-on-deck search for Elaine Sepulveda. Mary Jimenez had reached out to numerous missing children organizations for helps. It was these groups, including the Polly Klaus Foundation, with support from state and local law enforcement, who organized the upcoming massive search. Her mother held no illusion that Elaine was alive, but she desperately needed her daughter home, as all mothers of missing children do. This was the first truly big push to make that need a reality. On January 15th, the Friday morning of the big search weekend, I had loaded my children into my Jeep as we did every morning and headed out to take them to their various schools. As I drove the main road out of housing, approaching the very same corner it was reported that Elaine was last seen at, I noticed a flurry of activity. There were a bunch of news vans with solar dishes turning lazily on top, the nondescript American sedans of the American journalists flipping illegal bitches all up and down the main road, and in between the slow-moving vehicular anarchy of what is the location of a good story, I saw glimpses of yellow police tape. I saw the coroner's van, marked and unmarked police vehicles with priority parking status having been at the location far longer than the press. My heart sunk. I knew it was Elaine. Elaine had been found. Not in a forested area, but at a home. A home? What I couldn't understand, and what took hours to finally understand, was why that home? A nondescript, red-brick, ranch-style rambler sitting across from undoubtedly one of the busiest intersections in Oak Harbor. The entrance to the largest Navy housing neighborhood on the island. It had a high-fenced private backyard and was kept up beautifully, its garden always perfectly weeded and trim. I didn't recall ever seeing a resident of that home outside, not even working on that garden. No kids playing in the yard, 
nobody rambling to and from vehicles with grocery bags. It was, by and large, a very private residence with very little traffic, and no acquaintance or friend of mine was familiar with its inhabitants. I knew it didn't belong to the boy who last saw Elaine. He lived on the south side of town. So why that house? After one of the fastest trips of dropping kids around town I have ever made, while obsessively searching news radio to no avail, I raced home to simultaneously turn on local news and fire up the internet. It felt agonizingly slow at the time, but in summation, over the next few days, the harsh reality of the last moments of Elaine Sepulveda's all-too-short life and her brutally unnecessary death had come to light. Elaine, an adorably petite, pretty young woman with chocolate brown eyes that naturally turned down at their edges into almost a sad yet sweet expression, had for the first time in her 15 years fallen in love. Who knows what pulls the strings in the hearts of the young? Could it be James Sanders' three more years of maturity to the local Navy brats her own age that Elaine found so irresistible? Could it be that he was the son of a local and therefore more stable than the other kids? that moved as often as Elaine herself did. Photos of young James Sanders are not easily available on the internet, even to this day, so a peek into the boy's level of attractiveness isn't available. But one can assume there was something in that young man's features that swept Elaine off her feet. We do know that when his mother got sick and struggled to support the family, he got a job to help out. We knew that he was often at his grandparents' home, helping out with cleaning, care, and the upkeep of the impressive garden his grandfather kept in a very private backyard, a home that just so happened to sit across the street to the main entrance of the Navy housing where Elaine and her family lived. We learned a flurry of text messages flew between James and Elaine the last night of her life. It began once she had returned home by her parents' curfew and a plan for her to sneak out and meet him at the church across the street from Navy Housing was hatched. James had arranged this rendezvous to discuss Elaine's pregnancy. Having once been teens ourselves, we can easily envision the panic settling in on James Sanders' 18-year-old soul. He was an adult in the eyes of the law. A pregnancy occurring from a sexual relationship with a 15-year-old could land him in serious hot water. His plans for the future would be completely over. Any scholarships he had earned would be pulled immediately. His family and hers would want his head on a spike. He would have to register as a sex offender for the rest of his life. While Elaine probably only envisioned love and commitment from this boy as the result of her lie, James undoubtedly saw jail bars. Surely he went there to force Elaine to listen to reason, but there was no reason to be heard. Elaine had thrown all in with her deceit. To admit the truth would surely cost her this boy of her dreams. Did James not once consider that Elaine might be lying? Or had the panic settled so deeply into his bones, he couldn't see reason at all? It's then, he claims, under a cloudy, cold, moonlit night on the island in Puget Sound, that James Sanders, having attempted reasoning, begging, pleading, and finally furious anger when Elaine refused to abort his baby, that he pushed her. Hard. He told the police Elaine had fallen and hit her head on a rock that just happened to be laying around in the church's parking lot. She had lost consciousness and appeared to James to have stopped breathing. Panicking, realizing that he had just made what was already a bad situation a thousand times worse, 
picked up Elaine's tiny body and walked her just next door to his grandparents' home. He crept in through the back gate, familiar with every landmark on the way, assuring his activities would be silent as necessary to hide Elaine's lifeless body in his grandfather's mulch pit. He worked silently for hours in the familiar garden, digging as deeply into the pile as he could go, knowing his grandfather would turn the top layer every month, even throughout winter. He removed most of Elaine's clothing and her shoes in order to hasten decomposition, and then he covered her again with layers of mulch, leaving the pile seemingly undisturbed by the time the first rays of autumn sunshine shone upon his grandfather's backyard. He silently crept back out of his grandparents' gate and in the early morning hours returned to his mother's home, hiding some of Elaine's clothes and her shoes amongst his own in his bedroom. But the text messages did not lie. The police had known Elaine snuck out to meet James, so he went along with the mostly true story to them in the first days of her disappearance. He adamantly denied having anything to do with their disappearance, though, and told them time and again that she had left him with the situation of her pregnancy unresolved, that he had last seen her at 2.30 a.m. walking back into her Navy housing neighborhood on Southwest Regatta Drive. They had found her shoes in his room. He claimed she had left them last summer. Having no proof to the contrary, the police could do nothing but to continue to search for Elaine, with initially the hope she was still alive, and then, as days turned into weeks, in an effort to find her remains. Remains that would likely hold forensic proof to who was responsible for her death. So it was that days turned into weeks that turned into months with no sign of Elaine and not a word out of James until there came the announcement that the best of the best in search and recovery were descending on the island. The very best cadaver and search dogs in the United States would be amongst them. It was that knowledge that finally caused James Sanders to crack under the pressure. See, James knew that the dogs would begin their search in the parking lot of that church or on Southwest Regatta Drive, and it was only a matter of a few hundred feet before those dogs would lead the searchers right to his grandfather's mulch pile. He couldn't allow that to happen. He knew that once Elaine's body was discovered, all hell would break loose. So on the evening of Thursday, January 14th, James Sanders sat his grandpa down at his dining room table and told him he had something to confess. It was his grandfather that called the police late in the evening, after calling a local attorney to represent James. Police arrived at the house next to the church and across from Southwest Regatta Drive, just before midnight on the 14th of January, 2005. James Sanders was placed under arrest for the murder of Elaine Sepulveda, and the recovery of her remains began in earnest. The recovery lasted well through the morning, at which time I emerged from Navy housing myself and saw the plethora of law enforcement and media when I saw the yellow police tape. The massive search had been called off. What came out over the following days was even more heartbreaking than the tragedy initially seemed. Official reports from Island County Coroner stated that they had discovered leaves and mulch debris in Elaine's lungs. Elaine had been buried alive. She had succumbed to a combination of exposure and asphyxiation, not the blunt force trauma to her head. The rock James Sanders claimed, fe claimed Elaine fell and hit her head on was still there in the parking lot of the church, with the small staining of Elaine's blood clearly present to the naked eye. 
people that had undoubtedly spent hours searching for the girl walked past the innocuous stone that began the cause of her death countless times, myself included. The Island County coroner also cleared up the most important question we all had. Elaine Sepulveda was not pregnant at the time of her death. Despite James Sanders being of legal adult age, Island County kept information on him as tightly clamped down as they would for any juvenile. He was, after all, only a senior in high school. Despite his legal age, he was considered still a child himself. Naturally, due to his age, he was processed with other adult inmates, but access to him by media was largely hampered by law enforcement, supported by the local judiciary, and fought hard for by his defense attorney. No media photos were taken of him at any arraignments or pretrial hearings. A few short months later, in the beginning days of May 2005, James Sanders stood, weeping before Island County Superior Court Judge Alan Hancock, and confessed to causing the reckless death of his friend Elaine Sepulveda. A plea deal reached by the defense and prosecution for charges of manslaughter, unlawful disposal of human remains, and making false statements to a public servant was accepted by Judge Hancock, and James was sentenced to eight and a half years prison. With good behavior, he would be out in seven. The most shocking of all sights in the courtroom that day was the tearful embrace of the mothers of both James and Elaine, who held each other in comfort and support, something not often seen between the mothers of victim and perpetrator. Mary Jimenez, Elaine's mother, addressed James, stating, You can't even imagine how many lives you ruined by what you did to our daughter. The decision you made to bury her and put trash over her like she was nobody is unthinkable. She continued, there is no closure to something this painful. Sometimes I feel I can't go on living, and sometimes I have to remember to breathe. Nevertheless, she told her daughter's killer, my husband and I don't feel hatred toward you. Instead of vengeance, I ask God to give you a conscience so you can feel just how much pain you have caused. Elaine's father, Carlos Sepulveda, having flown in from Texas to attend this hearing, also addressed James. I ask that when you come out of prison, that you make something better of yourself. Do it for Elaine. That's all I ask. A local pastor then addressed the court on behalf of both families. He spoke mostly of the love and strength of the Jimenez-Sepulveda family, pointing out how much Mary, Elaine's mother, spends worrying that James' mother won't be able to visit him while he's in prison, that the thought causes her much grief. Mary held James's mother, Desiree, all that much tighter in the courtroom. James then addressed the court, Elaine's family and his own, and through sobs he expressed deep regret for what he had done, and that he is well aware that no amount of apologies will ever bring Elaine back to her family. He told the court he thinks of Elaine every single day and promised he will continue to do so for the rest of his life. In a moment of utter sincerity and remorse, he told the judge he'll take any punishment he deemed fit. James Sanders clearly began his official sentence that day, but not much is known or available as to his release date or what his life is like currently. He was most likely released from a Washington state prison in 2012. I can't tell you if he still thinks of Elaine every single day of his life but I am quite positive that brief moments of desperation, of frustration leading to an anger born out of fear so fierce has forever shaped the life of this young man, just as surely as it ended the life of the girl who loved him. Loved him so desperately she was willing to lie to keep him. 
a lie she was too young to understand the implications and the consequences of. At 15, Elaine wasn't thinking of any realistic sort of future or of scholarships or responsibility to family hardships or any of the very real pressure Jamie was living at the time. Did she know that Jamie's father had been so callous as to move a girlfriend into Jamie's childhood home and kick him and his mother out, only for his mother to become terribly sick with a rare medical condition shortly after, which forced Jamie into working to help support the family? Did she know the only reason Jamie and his mother were in Oak Harbor was to be closer to his grandparents' home, as his mother was so desperately ill and in need of help? Is the story's of fatherly abandonment behind the lies she told James, suspecting he would never do that to his own child? Or did she just make a stab at the one thing she believed might make him stay with her, as many desperately in love young women have done throughout history? As this all came to its conclusion, with Elaine Sepulveda returned to her family and properly laid to rest, and James Sanders sentenced and beginning his time in Washington State Prison, our community finally settled into healing. I wrote to my friend Ann Rule. Yeah, that Ann Rule of Stranger Beside Me fame and about a thousand other true crime books. You see, Ann had written me in the early days of the search, knowing I was local to the area, but she was surprised to hear that I lived only a few streets away and in the same neighborhood as the Jimenez-Sepulveda family. So I updated her on Elaine's search with each email, combining the local Navy gossip with official news reports. Once the plea deal and sentencing passed, I had asked Anne if she was going to include a short story in her next anthology about Elaine, and I was taken aback by her response. No, sadly, I will not be writing about Elaine, despite the cautionary tale the whole thing carries. Elaine was too young to have lived a full life, a life my readers would want to learn about. My readers want a full, in-depth backstory to be able to relate to a victim. Elaine, being only 15 at the time of her death, hadn't lived enough life to provide that. I was rendered speechless reading those words from the true crime queen. After some time in contemplation, I understood what she had meant. Hell, I only knew that Elaine's middle name was Amanda and that she was born in March of 1989. There just wasn't much to know. Even by this story, you can see I know more about the boy who murdered her than Elaine herself. And that frustrates me. Nonetheless, what Anne said stung. I feel Anne truly did know her readers. But at the time I received that email, I felt quite another emotion. It was somewhere on the scale between aghast and disgust. I believe then, and still believe now, that a life, no matter how shortly lived, was still worth talking about, telling about, remembering. Had I not been overwhelmed myself with emotion from the very first morning of her disappearance, when our community knew of her disappearance before the news ever announced it and were already out in groups of twos and fours desperately searching, had I not spent days praying I would find her alive in the forest surrounding our neighborhood, broken leg, trapped under a rock ledge or a log, had I not experienced the panic and then the acceptance that too much time had passed, and I would not be finding a live teenage girl. Did not each day seem like a painfully long year when we all, as a community, searched and scoured and went through all the forests on the north end of our island with a fine-tooth comb and found nothing? Did we not all suffer the same crushing blow when we realized that Elaine had been right there, right under our noses the entire time, Buried in a mulch pile in a backyard, we passed numerous times a day, 
every single day, a feeling of helplessness and frustration and finally outrage once it came to light that this poor child was not just buried right within our reach, but had been buried alive. I cannot begin to express the feeling of guilt that I and my neighbors felt that she was there within all of our reach and she was alive. We didn't find her and we could have saved her, but nothing hurt as much as that same feeling was multiplied in numbers I can't even count for her mother, our neighbor, our fellow Navy wife. How much did she suffer knowing her daughter was right there the whole time that her baby was within reach? Did we not learn about the capacity of forgiveness from a mother suffering a pain that gratefully most of us will never experience? The capacity for empathy of understanding of placing her own pain to the side just enough to feel the pain of another mother who will carry not just the burden of guilt of her own child's crimes, but will also struggle to express love for him in the face of her own community. Did we not learn that no matter how short her life was, Elaine Sepulveda was senselessly killed because she told a lie, a lie that a young girl in love truly believed would tie her prince to her forever. A young man's life was irreparably changed by his own series of terrible choices, culminating in a final act of desperation to keep his life from becoming any worse than it had already been. Difficulty thrust upon him by a cruel and selfish father and unwittingly by a helplessly sick mother. Of how one bad choice can turn into two, that can turn into three, and can spiral, can spiral out of control and destroy countless lives on its way. These stories matter. These stories change us. Not every murdered child is a John Bonet, and not every missing young woman is a Maura Murray. So hats off to the true crime podcasters like Ariel, who tell the stories, the senseless tragedies, and the cautionary tales of the lesser known in this world. The lives not fully lived, but the lives that mattered nonetheless. Rest in peace, Elaine Sepulveda. May your story live on, not as a cautionary tale about the dangers of not setting free someone you love, but for the beautiful, sweet, charming, and remarkable 15 years you graced our planet, that you, Elaine Amanda Sepulveda, are loved and therefore should never be forgotten. On that, happy second anniversary to Murder Under the Midnight Sun. Congratulations, Ariel, on two full years of telling the important stories, the lesser known, the tragic, the curious, and even the bizarre. I've been Casey Crane, recording live from Punk Rock Farm. Good night, everyone. I think we can all agree that was a really well-written and extremely touching story submitted by Casey. Thank you so much. That was so above and beyond what I was expecting. So fantastic. Really touched me. I'm always so in awe of people like Elaine's mother that have that kind of forgiveness that they can reach out to the mother of their daughter's killer. It's bizarre to me, but amazing that people like that exist. Next up, we have the lovely Nikki T from Strictly Homicide with a hometown murder. 
And if you guys haven't checked out her show yet, you should definitely give it a listen. Happy anniversary to Murder Under the Midnight Sun. What an exciting time for your show. Keep up the amazing work and thank you for creating a show for us to enjoy. I'm Nikki T from Strictly Homicide Podcast. I cover true crime out of the state of Arkansas. But for my case that I'll be sharing, it's a case from my hometown in California. This case may have actually been the case to get me into true crime. I was 12 and a friend of mine knew the victim and the detectives came to my home where she was to ask questions. I specifically remember the case for that reason. But many will remember the case where the victim's parents attempted to sue Slayer, claiming the music contributed to their daughter's death. The victim was a beautiful 15-year-old named Elise Poller. The murderers were acquaintances of hers, Jacob Delishmet, Joseph Florella, and Royce Casey, three very young men aged 14, 15, and 16. Elise knew the teens. They asked her to come get high with them, but instead of hanging out and getting high, they had a completely different plan. The three boys said that they needed to commit a sacrifice to the devil in order to give their heavy metal band hatred, the craziness that it needed to go professional. This was their exact words. The boys took her to a remote location in a eucalyptus grove on Napoma Mesa. Jacob removed his belt and began strangling Elise. Casey held her down while Joseph pulled a knife out and stabbed her in the neck. After the boys took turns stabbing her, they then performed necrophilia on her corpse. The boys would return to the crime scene where they left her body and continued to perform necrophilia. Casey ended up confessing to the crime following his conversion to Christianity eight months later. The three men pled no contest to her murder and were imprisoned, serving 25 years to life. In 1996, her parents later attempted to sue Slayer, claiming that their song Postmortem and Dead Skin Mask gave the three men step-by-step directions to stalk, rape, torture, murder, and then commit acts of necrophilia. The lawsuit was delayed for four years while the killer's trials concluded. The judge initially threw the case out, so they filed a second lawsuit, claiming that Slayer knowingly distributed harmful material to minors, but the judge threw that case out as well. Later, one of the boys did an interview admitting that the music had nothing to do with it, and it was simply because Joseph was obsessed with her and obsessed with the idea of murdering her. It was such an intense and scary situation. It happened in a small town that had no homicides. Well, that's my case that I wanted to share from my hometown, and I hope that you have a very happy anniversary. And here's to many more. Thank you so much, Nikki, for your great submission. I'm totally surprised that I hadn't heard of that story before because it's just so off the wall. I'm kind of surprised that no one has, I haven't really heard it on a podcast before, so maybe somebody should do that. But thank you so much for that submission. That was really interesting. Next up, I have a submission that was sent to me by Mina of True Crime Finland. 
I'm going to try to read it without butchering every single word. So wish me luck. This is a story of Algot Untula. Algot Untula was a Finnish reporter and author. Born originally as Algoth Tiatavainen <laughs> on the 28th of November in 1868 to farmer parents called Jaco Wilhelm Tiatavainen and Maria Shimontiar Hakulinen. I went Russian for a second, sorry. His father died 13 years later in 1881, and his mother Maria soon remarried. In 1887, Algo was able to enter the Sordavala Seminar with the help of his good grades and relatives and graduated as a teacher in 1891. From then on, he worked in the profession for almost 10 years. In 1900, he moved to St. Petersburg to become a wood salesman. There he met and married his wife, Therese Maria Johanna Kustring, though the marriage did not last long for reasons that have been speculated on, but none of them are verified. In Russia, he joined the Socialist Revolutionary Party, but once Russian Minister of the Interior, von Plew, was murdered in 1904, he escaped back to Finland as he had claimed he had been involved in the murder of the minister. Probably shouldn't tell people that. He went back to teaching and also wrote for a paper of the Finnish party, a Finnuman conservative political party with two different aliases. As he received a lot of attention for his writing, he got more involved with the party and started driving votes for it. Meanwhile, he had gotten involved with another woman called Olga Hasinski, but the relationship ended after two years when the couple's child passed away and Hasinski ended up pouring acid, wow, on Untula's private parts which got destroyed. That is horrible. That, yikes. Some say he never wrote under a male's name from that point forward anymore. Untala became a writer in 1909 when he published his first book and overall wrote over 20 books under several different aliases, many of them female names. He also worked as a reporter and an assistant. Once the Finnish Civil War started in 1918, Untala fought on the side of the Reds which was the communist labor movement. The opponent were the whites. Right before the war, he had began working for a labor paper and delivered its last ever number before Helsinki was taken in April of 1918. After the takeover, he was imprisoned. On the 21st of May in 1918, he was being taken from Helsinki to Suomenina, a sea fortress, to be executed. He died during this boat trip, but no one really knows how exactly. Some sources state he himself jumped into the water, wanting to escape, while others say he was shot on the boat and thrown into the water. It is still unclear what happened. Nonetheless, Algut Untla was buried in the Santa Hamina prison camp in a mass grave for executed Reds. In the late 30s, his remains were moved to the Hiet Tanimi graveyard in Helsinki, where they still are. Thank you so much for your submission, Mina. That sounds like something out of, like, Dostoevsky, not real life. That is a crazy life story, but 
interesting nonetheless. Thank you so much. If you guys want something totally different, you should definitely give her true crime podcast a listen. It'll be unlike anything you've listened to before. And for the last story of the episode, we've got a nice long submission from Michael Pritt of the True Crime Truckers podcast, and it will likely be the one case out of this episode that you've actually heard a lot about. But it's a very bizarre story nonetheless, and one that I know many people are obsessed with. Bay Village is a western suburb of Cleveland, Ohio. As of the last census, it has a population of roughly 15,000 people. I grew up about 40 miles east of Bay Village. Although I was only 8 years old at the time, I remember vividly watching as the events of this story unfolded. It was the first time I really remember hearing a story about a child abduction. Although I grew up in an era post-Adam Walsh, it was still a time where parents didn't worry about children playing outside till the streetlights came on. For that generation of children that lived in the greater Cleveland area, this case stole a bit of our innocence. A crisis can unite a community. That's what happened when 10-year-old Amy Mahalovic was abducted from a mall in Bay Village, Ohio. Citizens of the town raised a $60,000 reward and sent hundreds of letters to us asking for your help in bringing the abductor to justice. Amy Renee Mahalovic was born December 11, 1978 in Little Rock, Arkansas. Her parents were Margaret McNulty and Mark Mihalovic, who were originally from West Alice, Wisconsin. Amy's father worked for General Motors, and in 1984, his job was what brought them to the Cleveland area. Her mother got a job as a receptionist for the Trading Times magazine. Amy had a brother, Jason, who was two years older. Amy went to Bay Village Middle. She was a somewhat tomboyish fifth grader who loved horses. If you grew up in Northeast Ohio at that time, you probably can still remember her face, her slightly open-mouthed smile, capped off by her high and rounded cheeks, dark eyes, and shoulder-length brown hair, done up in a sideways ponytail. Amy and her brother live close enough to the school that they often rode their bikes, which they did on October 27, 1989. It had been unusually warm that week. Amy got out of school around 2 p.m. Her brother got out an hour later. Normally, Amy would ride her bike home and wait for her brother to return. Their mother would get home from work around 5. However, this Friday would be different. On this day, instead of going home, Amy went a quarter mile down the street to the Bay Village Shopping Plaza. It was a popular hangout spot for young kids. She chit-chatted with friends and went back and forth between the Baskin-Robbins and the barbershop. But mostly, according to witnesses, she spent most of her time twirling around the poles that lined the outside of the shopping center. All in all, Amy was at the Bay Village Shopping Center for about an hour, when all of a sudden she heard a voice. Amy? 
She turned to see a man. He put his arm around her shoulder and bent down, whispering something into her ear. With that, the man led her away through the parking lot. And just like that, Amy Mahalovic was gone. Jason arrived home a little after three o'clock. When he came in the house, he noticed that Amy was not home. He called his mother, Margaret, at work to tell her that Amy had not returned from school yet. Margaret became concerned and decided to leave work early. Just as she was getting ready to leave, the phone rang. It was Amy. Margaret asked Amy where she was and why she hadn't come home yet. Amy told her mother that she was at choir tryouts. They talked for a couple of minutes, but Margaret got the distinct feeling that something wasn't quite right. Amy was answering in short one to two word responses. Margaret decided to leave work and head home. When Margaret arrived home around 4.30, Jason was there, but Amy was not. Jason said that Amy still had not returned home. Margaret decided to drive to Bay Middle School to see if Amy was still there. When she got there, she didn't find Amy, but what she did find was Amy's blue and white bike still locked up to the bike rack outside of school. Margaret then decided to go directly to the police station. Eerily, the police station was directly across the street from the Bay Village Shopping Center. To the credit of the Bay Village Police Department, they immediately treated Amy Mahalovic's case as a kidnapping. They were able to get her picture out on the evening news that night. What the police were unaware of, but they would soon find out, is that right at the estimated time of Amy's abduction from the Bay Village Shopping Center, the Bay City Police were having a department group photo taken. That means that when the kidnapper was taking Amy from right across the street, every police officer in the Bay Village area was at the police station at that very moment. Contact 
Almost immediately, Bay Village police received assistance from the FBI. A lot of agents for the FBI have homes in Bay Village, so the case became personal for them. In an era where jurisdiction disputes and bureaucratic red tape abound, this case was the exception that proves the rule. They set up a base of operations in the basement of the Bay Village Police Department. Local volunteers has a base of operations on the second floor. Search parties were formed and missing posters distributed. The investigators followed the usual pattern of starting with the family and working their way out. They were quickly able to eliminate Amy's parents as suspects. It's when they started interviewing friends of the family that they got a chilling detail. Interviewing one of Amy's friends, it was learned that she went to the shopping center to meet someone. The police learned that days before Amy's kidnapping, her abductor had been calling her on the phone. He told Amy that he worked with her mother and that her mother just recently had gotten a promotion. Amy's mother, in fact, had gone from part-time to a full-time position, so Amy may have taken this as meaning that she had gotten a promotion. The caller said that her co-workers wanted to get her mother a gift, but they weren't sure what she would like. He asked Amy if she would go with him and help him pick out the gift. Since it was a surprise, he asked Amy not to tell anyone. They agreed to meet at the Bay Village Shopping Center after school on Friday. I always taught um, my children all of the uh, safety rules. Uh, you don't talk to strangers. If someone stops and asks for directions, you stand on the opposite side of the sidewalk. Don't go near the car. Knowing Amy as I do, she wouldn't do anything without asking permission except for trying to please me. Unfortunately, it's that love, that trust, that caring that was her downfall. Further interviews of friends uncovered two schoolmates of Amy's that saw her leaving the shopping center with a man. At the time, they believed that this man was Amy's father. The police were able to come up with two composite sketches of the suspect. He was described as a white male, between 30 to 35 years of age, approximately 5'8 to 5'10, medium build, dark brown hair, possibly wearing round glasses and a tan jacket. Margaret slept next to the phone. News reporters swarmed Bay Village trying to interview the family, police, 
or anyone claiming to be close to the Mahalovic family. Halloween came and went, then Thanksgiving, followed by Amy's 11th birthday. Her family threw a birthday party for the missing girl, then Christmas and New Year's. February 8, 1990, 104 days after Amy went missing. This day, like the day she was kidnapped, was unusually warm. A young woman is jogging her normal route in Ruggles Township, Ohio. Ruggles Township is a small farming community in Ashland County, about 50 miles south of Bay Village. As the young woman was traveling down County Road 1181, she saw something she hadn't ever noticed before. In a wheat field, about 20 feet up from the western side of the road, at first she thought that someone was playing a trick on her and had placed a dollar mannequin there. When she got closer to investigate, she realized it was no doll. Late this afternoon, the Cuyahoga County Coroner confirmed that a body found by a jogger this morning on a remote Ashland County road is that of Amy Mahalovic. The jogger ran to the nearest farmhouse, the Ashland County Sheriffs were contacted. Within hours, the scene was swarming with police and FBI. What was in that field was the body of a young girl, wearing light green sweats. It was the same outfit Amy was wearing when she was kidnapped. The body was taken to the coroner's office, while law enforcement gathered every piece of trash and debris up and down the county road. Later that afternoon, they used fingerprints and dental records to positively identify the body as that of 10-year-old Amy Mahalovic. The Cuyahoga County Coroner's Office examined the body. That body has been positively identified as that of Amy Mahalovic. It certainly isn't what we were all and every one of you two were hoping for. The Ashland County Coroner performed an autopsy. 
Initial investigation determined that Amy's body was dumped there not long after her abduction. Since she was kidnapped in late October and found in early February, the winter had slowed decomposition. The contents of her stomach, which at first were determined to be some sort of a soy meat alternative, was later determined to be the spaghetti she ate for lunch at school. They also determined that Amy's body had been redressed. Blood on her underwear and subsequent examination determined that she had been sexually assaulted. Broken fingernails told investigators that she had fought off her attacker. They were able to pull partial DNA from under her fingernails. Amy was struck hard in the back of the head with a blunt object. Cause of death was exsanguination. She had two stab wounds on the left side of her neck, one lacerating her carotid artery. She bled out slowly, taking an estimated 30 minutes. They found tan fibers on the body, which were later identified as carpet fibers from a 75 to 78 GM model car. The sounds of rural Ashland County warn of a passing train, a tragedy averted. The sights along County Road 1181 warn of a tragedy committed. White ribbons have been strung in memory of Amy Mahalovic. Amy's body was discovered right alongside 1181 last week. The ground has been scraped by investigators for soil sample analysis. Another portion is covered with flowers left by shock residents who now have more personal reasons to help in finding Amy's killer. The news, although not the outcome everyone was hoping for, was a bit of closure to Amy's family. Her remains were cremated and she was buried in Highland Memorial Park in New Berlin, Wisconsin. For almost 30 years, this is the limbo that the case has been left in. Welcome back, everyone. Who killed Amy Mahalovic? It's a question that has baffled investigators now for 17 years. Sweet little girl from Quiet Bay Village kidnapped and murdered. Well, one researcher thinks the killer is still here, still living in Bay Village. There have been some developments every few years. In 2005, it was revealed that the killer may have taken souvenirs of the crime. These items include a pair of turquoise horsehead earrings, a black leather binder with a gold clasp that says Buick, best in class, Amy's ankle-high riding boots, which had silver studs going up the side, a denim book bag with red piping, and a white windbreaker. In 2016, the Bay Village Police held a press conference displaying a blanket and a homemade curtain. These items were found a few hundred feet from Amy's body. They were able to match the hairs on both of these items with those of Amy's dog. They believe that the killer wrapped her body in this to conceal it. One of the statements Amy made uh, was that, uh, that she was going to run for president. But she didn't want to be president because only men should be president, but she would be vice president, she said. Uh, always think of Amy on her birthday for sure because what would she look like at age 33? And how many grandchildren would I have? 
It's always a question mark that'll never be uh, answered. As far as the Mihaljevic family, this event shaped their lives in different ways. Mark and Margaret were having problems before the kidnapping. They divorced in 1991. Mark went on to remarry in 1995. Him and his second wife still live in the Cleveland area. Jason grew up and went to college. He married and lives near Akron. Margaret co-founded the Community Fund for Assisting Missing Youth. In the first two years, the program taught 47,000 children about the dangers posed by strangers. She became the public face for the family. However, she was never able to move on. She moved to Las Vegas in 2000. Margaret McNulty died from complications from alcoholism on September 29, 2001. She was 54. She was taken to West Berlin, Wisconsin, where her remains were buried on top of Amy's, protecting her in death from a world she couldn't in life. This case hangs over Northeast Ohio, hiding in the recesses until a new story brings it back out into the light. I have my own opinion of who I think is responsible. I won't name him here, but it's not hard to find out about him. I believe that the killer is still alive. He is anywhere from 60 to 70 years of age. I believe that he does look similar to the composite sketch. It had come out that there had been similar phone calls to girls around Amy's age in the Northeast Ohio area around the time of her abduction. I believe that this man tried as many young girls as he could until he convinced one to meet him. I don't believe he set out to murder. I believe molestation was the ultimate goal. His calls in the day beforehand were his attempt at grooming Amy, a tactic used by pedophiles. I think that when Amy realized that they weren't going to the mall to pick out a gift for her mother, that she fought her kidnapper. I believe in the struggle that he struck her on the back of the head and that this caused him to panic and decide to ultimately murder Amy. This was more than likely his only murder. However, I am convinced that he has assaulted other children. 
He probably worked or volunteered somewhere where he would be close to children. Also, it wouldn't have just been girls he would have abused. Amy was a prepubescent girl. What is generally known about pedophiles that target prepubescent children is that gender is not a motivator. It is more the body type, which at that time is quite similar for boys and girls. I expect that if he wasn't charged with these types of crimes, that rumors about him would have circulated. He would have been acting strange around the time that Amy was kidnapped and after her body was discovered. Thanks to everyone that submitted and everybody that listened. If you're interested in participating in a future listener episode, you can drop me an email at midnightsunmurder at gmail. Night, guys.